Hello and welcome to Season 2 of the Life of Gusto podcast. I'm your host, Augusto Andres. Whether you're a returning listener or new to the show, thanks for tuning in. My guest is Charles Salter, the president and COO of News Literacy Project, which provides educators with the tools and resources to help young people become informed, active consumers of news and information. In this episode, he shares his insights into how we arrived at this period where truth itself is under siege, the challenges of navigating our complex information landscape, and most importantly, why civics education is a key component to helping preserve our democracy. He also shares what he's learned about leadership over the course of his 25 years in education and nonprofit management. Enjoy the show and see you on the other side. Charles Salter, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you. Thanks for being here. Do people call you Chuck at work? You're Chuck, right? Yes. I can't call you Charles. I just... No one calls me that unless they don't know me. Yeah. <laughs> That's how I know. I was like, you don't really know me. <laughs> yeah. Um, now, you and I go way back, and it's always kind of an we interesting do. experience to, uh, to interview friends. But uh, um, <clears throat> you're somebody I've been wanting to, to get on for a long time just because of the moment that we're in kind of as a country, um, not just the last four years, but in particular this, this last year. Um, and normally I start by talking about you know, people's journey about where they, they have um, gone and how they've gotten to the, this point in their career. But I, I would actually kind of like to start with um, the work that you do um, with news literacy, uh, the news literacy project, if that's okay. Sure, yeah, my story is not that exciting. I think the work I do now is probably more exciting. So the News Literacy Project is a nonpartisan nonprofit. Um, it was founded about 13 years ago by a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist. And he saw in his daughter's middle school class that students growing up today and people in general really suffered from a lack of of news literacy and what that is is essentially just the ability to discern fact from fiction in the information that you receive and the ability to identify uh, quality sources of journalism or what we would call uh, sources of fact-based journalism right and so he he started this this program and so we now work in 50 states with thousands of teachers and hundreds of thousands of students every year um, and we've actually even in the last year launched an initiative to help educate is probably not the right word, but at least raise awareness uh, within the general public of the importance of news literacy and the fact that this is a skill that anyone can develop and, and probably should. And I think the, the most important fact that we've landed on and sort of the truth that we share with people is we feel that a news literate population is rather required for a democracy to survive um, because in order for people to be engaged uh, productive citizens and engaged participants in a democratic society you have to be well informed and you know you mentioned at the beginning of what's going on in the country today i think what we see is you know the manifestation of when people act uh, on some on misinformation and in this case disinformation uh, it can, things can go terribly awry and it can be a threat and it is a threat to, to our democracy and to a democracy anywhere that if nothing is true or if there is no truth, uh, anything is possible. 
You know, I mentioned the last four years, but we know this is something that's been coming for, for a long time. It's not something that just has come out of nowhere. Um, I wanted to ask you about something you said on a podcast recently. Um, you said, we live in the most complex information landscape in human history. More information is being produced on multiple platforms in more ways than ever before, and people aren't equipped to deal with it. I thought that was a pretty apt characterization of kind of the world that we live in right now. So I wanted to, to ask you, you know, how do you think we got here? And what, it, what is it that people don't have the ability to, to do um, in the face of all this information? Yes, so how we got here quite simply was the internet. <laughs> uh, that's the biggest, that's the biggest piece. But, you know, a fact that I usually share with people when I'm doing, you know, presentations, general presentations about NLP is that when the country was founded, the average citizen was exposed to the amount of new information in their lifetime. They were exposed to new information that could fit in one of today's New York Times editions. Wow. You know, people didn't really move from their homes. You know, they grew up, lived in the same towns. They didn't travel that far. News and information itself didn't travel that far. And so, you know, your, your information ecosystem was pretty small. And today you have access to anything you want, any knowledge you want almost immediately. On top of that, because of cable, deregulations, just free market enterprise, our media ecosystem has also fractured. You know, when our parents were growing up, my dad always points this out, and it is true, 50, 60% of America would get its news from the same source. They right. would listen to Walter Cronkite. Six right? o'clock, we'd all sit down. Exactly, six o'clock, right. you'd all sit down. Now there are stations that have news and information and entertainment state I haven't even heard of. You listen to the, you know, you watch the Emmys or the Oscars or basically the Emmys. You're like, I haven't even heard of that show because it's on a channel you've never even heard of right. that people are being entertained by or informed by. And so, you know, we've, we've had sort of this fraction of, of our media ecosystem as well. And so it's become much louder, much more complex. Information travels much faster now, but also at the same time, you know, with any good comes the evil and this is the evil is it's also so much easier to manipulate that information now. Right. Um, and we've always had bias in media. We've always had bad actors in media. You know, it's actually something that I learned when I started with NLP is the idea of an unbiased, apolitical newspaper and standards-based journalism in the United States is an idea that's actually only about 120 years old. And before that, we had very polarized, you know, you had the Democratic paper and you had the Republican paper and, you know, that kind of thing. And they were unabashedly biased and political uh, in their coverage. And so this is nothing ahistorical. <laughs> We've seen it before. It's just that there's so much more of it mm -hmm. and it's so much more easily manipulated. And people do not know, people are not taught, don't have the innate skill set to sort through it. You mm -hmm. read it, you believe it, especially if you think it's coming from a credible source. Right. But you know, one of the one of the points that we look at, there's a study that Stanford did, uh, the Stanford History Education Group, uh, specifically, they did, and I think they updated it just in 2019, that the vast majority of high school students couldn't tell the difference 
between branded content and advertisement um, that was made to look like a news story and an actual news story. Right. And in this flip side, they found that adults, I think it was Pew that actually found that the vast majority of adults didn't discern the difference between an opinion piece and a news piece. Mm. And right. uh, that, that fight's going on to this day, that it's like people get mad at like, oh, the New York Times or oh, the Washington, you know, the Wall Street Journal. And it's like, that was their opinion pages. Right. <laughs> you know, that is not their news reporting. And people don't tell the difference and can't right. discern. Well, and then and also so a lot of um, programs on cable also kind of are a little bit of a hybrid of both where they present mm -hmm. facts, but then they'll put their quote unquote analysis or commentary on it and then present it, present their analysis as fact. You know, it's perceived true. that way, yeah. Right, it is true. They are, especially in the evening blocks, right? Mm -hmm. The evening blocks are, much more editorialized, I should say, uh, while they're still news programs, they're editorialized. The straight fact-based reporting that you see on cable news during the day, yeah, there's probably some bent, you know, you have to make editorial decisions on what, get covered, what gets covered and how, but you find that it's still, whether you're on Fox or you're on MSNBC, it's pretty fact-based. I mean, you know, one thing we always point out to people when, when they get mad at us that we, we would defend Fox as a legitimate news source, right, as a, a, a fact-based news source is, right, Fox was the first network to call the election for Joe Biden. Right. And still to this day defends, you know, their decision to do so and right. to do so so early, right? And so whatever their pontificating opinionators are in the evening, mm -hmm. right, you've still got, you've still got some standards that they follow. But yeah, and people people get confused because like you mentioned, everybody tuned in at six o'clock, right? Well, now if you tune into cable news, left or right, you know, progressive or conservative, at that six o'clock, seven o'clock hour, those are fairly editorialized shows. Mm -hmm. And it's not just people who are, you know, the BBC, I believe they still do this. You know, they call their broadcasters, um, you know, they're called readers. <laughs> Right. because they read the news, right? <laughs> They're just reporting to you, right? At least it was in, in the good old days. Mm -hmm. And and here now we see somebody, oh, they're on MSNBC, they're reporting, they have the Chiron underneath them, they have the graphics and stuff, so it must be true. People kind of stop applying their own critical thinking mm -hmm. and just take whatever they see or whatever they hear as fact, because quite frankly, they either don't have the skill set for it or, or the, the muscle memory to do it, but, or there is just so much of it, right? It's easier just to say, okay, you know, all I can do is find time to consume some of this. And so mm -hmm. I'm just gonna take it, right. or I'm not gonna read another source. I'm not gonna see a countering opinion. I'm just gonna like listen to this and that must be true because it's on the news. Mm -hmm. Right, because it takes effort to- It does. To do it that, does. right? You know, we, we, we provide a, I think we have a, a graphic for folks that says, that basically explains to people how to be more news literate. And we really break it down to, do you have a minute? Do you have five minutes? Do you have 10 minutes? Like, mm -hmm. here's what you can do. Like mm -hmm. to actually, to check the, the quality of your news source to verify whether it's credible or not. Um, there are some pretty quick things you can do, or then, yeah, you can spend, you know, 15 minutes doing reverse image searches <laughs> on, the, on the story to see if they're legitimate. Most people aren't going to do that. And so we've come up with this idea of like, hey, here's, it takes a minute mm -hmm. to do this basic verification of a story before you share it online or, or trigger. Because that's, that's the other thing I meant to mention earlier is what helps 
kind of pollute this information ecosystem besides the the amount of information and the the sources of information is the fact that social media now which is where most people get their news it's their business model those who criticize it and want to be really critical of it call it engagement by enragement Mm. And so they're right. feeding you things that based on your past actions, their algorithms be to, to feed you either more conspiracy theory stories or more stories that follow, you know, a political bent or something like that. And you get kind of in this echo chamber in your media bubble right. and people aren't even aware of it, that right. this is being done to them, that the news they're seeing is actually being curated for them. Right. And, right. and that's always a problem. I think people who are on social media realize that that's happening to some degree, but maybe um, don't stop and question that. You know, when if I'm watching, if I'm on Instagram and I'm like watching cat videos, like I'll start to see more cat videos. Um, but you have to kind of, like, like you said, stop and, and, and think about what is being fed to me. And it's true. We have a lesson for students uh, about algorithms simply so that they understand how their feeds are created and curated just for them. But here's the thing is, you're right, we, we all love our cat videos and our car videos and all of that. Um, we, we all watch them. Um, but what's being, what I don't think people understand or, or you know, spend much time thinking about is the fact that every bit of content that they see mm -hmm. is curated for them, right. including the news. Right. It's not just advertising like, oh, right. I just looked at those jeans online and now I've got all these ads. It yeah. is everything. Your entire feed is built around you, mm -hmm. um, including the news. And now that, like I said, social media is the number one source for the majority of Americans to get their news. Mm -hmm. That's incredibly dangerous. It's right. incredibly dangerous. Right. And so kind of turning towards um, news literacy specifically. And you, you wrote a, a piece for Education Week um, last fall, I think. Um, mm -hmm. And in it, you, you, you say that news literacy is a, a fundamental skill that needs to be taught um, in schools, and especially in civics education. Can you talk a little bit about, in your experience, what, what are you seeing or not seeing in civics education that is helping or not helping students or young people develop the the skills and the mindset to be able to, to deal with all this information that they're encountering. Mm -hmm. So it's funny you should ask that now um, because I'm just finishing up sort of a, a 50 state landscape analysis of civics and government requirements uh, as well as sort of civic or social studies and English, English language arts standards in each state that could cover news literacy, right? Because the news literacy project is about to enter the legislative arena. Um, we're going to start working to make sure that the standards of news literacy are actually required standards to be covered for graduation in the United States because they aren't now. And so I've found a few things either within civics or social studies or English language arts. For instance, English language arts, every now and then you'll find something about analyzing a text to discern or, or to, to look for arguments and evidence, mm -hmm. right? And then that's one of the standards of news literacy is to be able to understand an argument and evidence and the credibility of both, right? But as a discrete set of standards, uh, with skills, 
mindset and knowledge. We have all three kinds of standards for students to exhibit or to prove that they are news literate. Those do not exist anywhere in any state standards. And we think that the easiest way to integrate them would be into civics because there are it, there is a lot of talk or a lot of words written I've found in the frameworks, right? The learning frameworks that states put out that a lot of what we're getting at and being more informed and more engaged as a citizen are there. In theory, that's what students should be learning in, in high school. Mm -hmm. But what I'd love to see is not only the integration of news literacy into civics standards, but the overall elevation of civics once again in public schools. Right. Um, it's empirical, you can see it. I think in the, the NEA even pointed out once that in the 60s, it was not uncommon for students to take three or more courses in civics, participation in a democracy, government, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. In most states, if there is a discrete requirement for graduation, it is a semester. Right. Just one semester, right? And so, and it has been pushed out by, you know, the other core subjects that are now being tested. And I think not only have we lost the purpose of public education, the founding purpose of it um, mm -hmm. is to provide a, you know, a common frame of reference for your democratic society, but we've done it a great disservice to, to students in general in, in not understanding you know, how the country is supposed to work and what their role would be in it. And again, like we said earlier in our talk was that we feel the first step, one of the fundamental skills that should be taught within civics is how to discern fact from fiction and information. Because as a member of a democratic society, in theory, the power is in your hands to make choices. And you have to be well-informed to make those choices. Right. So it's, it's really my hope that we can do kind of two things at once, elevating civics and integrating news literacy into that elevation is kind of our, our ultimate goal. And I think would go a long way to helping people understand the system that they live in, but also the role that they should play in it. Um, because I think as dangerous as being misinf misinformed is, it is dangerous to not understand how the system is supposed to work in the first place and what right. role you play in it. It's real funny to see what people think should be happening, say in Washington, DC, or who in Washington, DC has the right to do what, when you're like, that's not how this works at all. <laughs> you're like, this is, you know, we saw some evidence of that, you know, in the past couple of months as well, is what, what people were expecting to happen was something that couldn't even happen. Right. It's not the way the government works. And just having that sort of basic understanding could go a long way for people to, well, basically for people to be empowered to better engage with their government, with their fellow citizens and with the system that we all live in. Mm -hmm. Well, I was surprised too. I mean, I, I, as a teacher myself, you know, not always aware of what's going on in other states. Mm -hmm. I was surprised that government wasn't or civics wasn't a requirement in every state. It's, it's a, like you said, a semester in most but um, not all. But I did want to ask you, you know, I think, you know, um, you know, in my own experience, just as the world was becoming more complex and there was all this information being thrown at, at us, I kind of doubled down um, as a teacher on critical thinking because I thought, you know, that's the best thing I could do to help arm students with uh, as they go out into the world is, you know, the ability to question, to analyze, to evaluate evidence, to construct an argument. Um, but 
you know, and that's something that I think should be happening on in all subjects. Um, but is that not enough? Do you think? And no, I agree. Yeah, I agree. Some of our taglines at, at NLP are we teach students how to think about news and information, not what to think. We don't endorse or condone any or condemn any news outlets. Okay, mm -hmm. there's a few that we do that are just not real that right. people confuse for being real. But for the most part, we're like, you make the decision. Like, mm -hmm. here's how you determine if something is credible or not. Mm -hmm. And I, I really think that should be a broader approach for, for education. But, you know, you, in, in a variety of subjects, but you mentioned something that, that kind of reminded me of something I've recently, I think, concluded is this idea of, oh, it's sort of a skill set that applies to multiple subjects. I am open to that, which is why I think we could integrate it into, say, English language arts standards. I just prefer civics because it's patriotic and I, I think it makes more, I think it makes more sense. And I think it's something that we need mm -hmm. to do. Mm -hmm. But there is a movement in the United States right now uh, among many to increase media literacy, mm. the term media literacy in, mm -hmm. in education, in that media literacy covers all media. So it's about cyberbullying, it's about safety in video games, you know, right. it's about all kinds of stuff. And we're, you know, news literacy is simply about news and information that people mm -hmm. are getting and how to, how to deal with that. And there was a time we thought, oh, we're just going to hop on the media literacy bandwagon. Right. And what I've determined is because media literacy, even by its loudest proponents, media literacy is sold as this idea of, oh, it's, you can integrate it into everything. Mm -hmm. What I've noticed is even in the states that formally have accepted media literacy, nowhere is it required. Nowhere is it tested. Mm -hmm. And nowhere are there actually clear standards there are frameworks and suggestions and where it might be able to be integrated. Mm -hmm. And we all know teachers are busy and they're trying to get through the curriculum they're required to get through, right? right. And, right. and especially paying attention to the stuff that gets tested. And so media literacy, I'm like, well, that's great that it's on paper and there are handouts and the Department of Education at the state level, you know, has something about it. But nowhere do you see any instruction for really how to do it or mandating for it has to happen, right? Mm -hmm. And so I try, when I... When I think about advocating for news literacy, I try to steer clear. You're absolutely right. It's a skill set that's applicable in multiple subjects. I feel like to pitch it that way, we would fall into the same bucket where yeah. it becomes something that would be nice to integrate into your ELA instruction or your civics instruction. And I'm thinking we to make it a thing, right? To make it really stick mm -hmm. and to ensure that everybody's going to get this kind of instruction before they graduate from high school you have to make it a separate thing, right? Okay. Like these standards have to be integrated into a mandated course somewhere. Right. right. And I think, you know, probably um, this last year in recent events, January 6th kind of really pointed out why more than ever that's important. I did want to ask you though, what do you do with people who have already, who, kind of live in an alternate reality with their own facts. I mean, I think that's something that you also touched on in this interview, but um, I've been thinking about a lot. Um, you know, as the, maybe this is a, a reaction to the complexity of the, the landscape, but everyone seems to, a lot of people seem to just retreat into their own mm -hmm. kind of world of like, I only listen to 
these sources and watch these these news programs. Anything else is fake news. And so they're kind of the, the way they look at the world and the way they interact with it and the decisions they make are based on kind of a different world. It's a different, a different world with different facts. Um, how do you deal with that? So we're all prone to to fall into what's you know confirmation bias. Mm-hmm. You want to hear what makes you feel good um, or you want to watch the news to be mad about something that you want to be mad about, right? And you're going to go to the station that's going to tell you to be mad about it, right? That's human nature and that's really hard uh, to overcome. There's a couple things. It's a complex question. You're asking great questions. They're never simply answered with a yes or a no. That's what right. I was hoping for. <laughs> yes, <laughs> no, done. But so there's a couple things to unpack here. First, it's your question um, kind of raises the point as to why we start with middle and high school students. Mm-hmm. Right? Because their political beliefs and their news habits haven't yet been formed. Yet their critical thinking capacity is at such a state that they can start to learn news literacy. Mm-hmm. Right? So we snag them while they're young. Right. And also because our original idea was they're the next to enter the voting booth. Right. Like, you know, when you deal with 16, 17, 18 year olds, they're the ones that are going to vote in the next election. So we want that they're fresh. Mm-hmm. So then that leaves you with the people. Actually, <laughs> there was another study. I forget who did it, but it came out and it kind of made us roll our eyes. It was like, oh, super. That most misinformation online is shared by people 65 and older. <laughs> it's the folks that are retired and spending all their, their whole day on Facebook just clicking left and right with whatever they see, right, mm-hmm. is, is the bigger problem. And so there is work to do there, but it is much more challenging to right. get somebody out of this ecosystem that they and political beliefs that they've just built you know, themselves into for a decade. We keep talking about recent events in January. There was a line in the inauguration uh, address that President Biden said that has stuck with me and has actually helped me in some of my planning for the future of NLP. He was going on about how there is truth and there are lies. And, you know, we have to get back basically to the time where the truth wins, at least the majority of the time. And where he said something along the lines of there were times, dark times, where enough of us carried the rest of us, Mm. which is true, Right. right? And I keep reflecting on the fact that there's 330 million of us We're a very big country, um, a very diverse country that I think gets lost on those of us who live here. There's only two other countries on earth, right, that have a population bigger than ours, um, which is something most people don't think about the United States, that we really are that big. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of everything in this country. You know, if you get 1% of the population to believe something, that's like three and a half million people. (laughs) That's a lot of people, right? It doesn't have to be a very popular idea to have a lot of people support it, right? And so there will always be people who are misinformed and there will always be people who will stay in their ecosystems and, you know, there's really no hope for them. But I do believe that there are, you know, you start with the younger generation and you still work with the general population to to really get people to be a little bit more discerning. There will come a time, and I I think we're we're still in it. I I think that we haven't tipped over to not being, you know, salvageable. But I think we're going, we'll reach a point where there are enough of us to carry the rest of us, Mm -hmm. right? Or the, the strong majority, not that we'll always agree politically, 
Right. But that we will come to a time where there is the vast majority, a strong majority in the country that agrees on facts, right? And agrees on what is the truth. Uh, now we will differ about what it means and what we should do about it and, and all of that. Uh, that's great. We long for those days where that was our political fight. But when you're basically fighting about what is the truth, that's where you get into real trouble. And we are coming close to kind of that precipice, but I think we demonstrated, you know, throughout the election that truth wins uh, still. Um, and that there are enough people who are critical thinkers and can hear the truth, even if it's not favorable to them right. um, or they're, you know, not favorable or in alignment with their original, whatever, political philosophy uh, to, to, to do the right thing and to make a choice based on the truth. And so I'm still hopeful. But I think if we not to ramble on for too long, but, you know, America has always had kind of a love affair with uh, conspiracy theories. <laughs> it's like historically it's through there and we used to have a political party called the know nothing. Right. <laughs> like right. this kind of anti-intellectual anti-elite thread through American history has always been around. Uh, our job is to keep that kind of thinking in the minority. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And because we will never eradicate it. Uh, right. There's too many of us and their people are too different. And some people will just disagree with you just because they're ornery. <laughs> they want to disagree, right? Yeah. Um, and so I don't ever think we should solve, I don't ever think we should set for ourselves as a goal, like the reclaiming of some never existent uh, before, you know, golden age where we were all well informed right. and right. we were all, you know, all of that. And so I think, I think we just need to keep perspective on that of what we're actually trying to accomplish and to know that educating and enlightening 330 million people to all be news literate and see the truth and be engaged citizens will never happen, but right. it doesn't need to, right? right? It doesn't need to. Well, shifting gears to, to your own journey, um, you've been a teacher um, and nonprofit leader uh, superintendent, now president of this organization. If you could pinpoint or maybe just talk about how did, did you get to this point? Um, is leadership something that you've always been interested in? Education as a field, is that something that was in the cards? So no, it wasn't actually. Um, in college, I was a language tutor for college students and I was a music tutor for middle school students. Um, and I really enjoyed it. And I had a couple of roommates in the house I lived in who were actually education majors. And I thought it might be fun to be a teacher. Right. Mm -hmm. And kind of this providence, if you believe in that sort of thing, that very day, the recruiter for a new organization called Teach for America came to our campus mm -hmm. because I had just asked my uh, my housemates, what would it take for me? I was a I was an international studies and a German double major in college, and this was my uh, senior year, I think, in college. And I asked them what it would take to become a teacher, and they're like, it would require an entire fifth year to get like your Pennsylvania. I was in college in Pennsylvania. Your Pennsylvania teaching requirements taken care of. My parents were having none of that. 
um, for my, my private school education. And so I had to finish in four years. And then the very next day, literally, um, a recruiter for Teach for America came. It was the first time they had ever been to my campus because usually their route included a much larger university down the road. Mm-hmm. And they just happened to have an extra day, so they came there. I applied and I was the first person from my school to be accepted into that program. And, you know, I did it because, you know, I grew up in a military family and it took me a little while to realize this because my parents don't really talk about themselves that much in their careers, but we really grew up with sort of an ethos of service in Mm -hmm. my family. And so I wanted to do something with service and I applied to the Peace Corps. And they were real nice and told me you're real smart and thanks, but you don't speak any useful language or have any practical skills that we need. <laughs> and so no thanks, right? I picked the wrong language to study, I guess. And, and so I, I found AmeriCorps and, you know, I was doing other, I was thinking about working on like uh, Native American reservations, uh, doing that kind of work. And then I found Teach for America and they kind of found me and I got into it. I really, I literally was a poster child for Teach for America. I was on a poster once for them. <laughs> But it was one of those things where I stayed beyond my two-year commitment for a third year. Um, I became really involved in my community that I worked in. I started a nonprofit there. I was elected the president of the teachers union there and just really kind of fell into this um, thing and, and really enjoyed it. But, you know, not to sound too much like a cliche, it was three years that really did change my life and the direction of my life. And, and I realized that I cared about three things in my life. It was uh, sort of civil rights and equality for everyone. It was uh, democracy and sort of, nowadays we call it democratic reform. Uh, In law school, I studied it. It was called the law of democracy, which is what makes a democracy work and not work. Mm -hmm. And then the third thing I found out was education, because I realized you could have a society where everybody was equal. You could have a democratic society where everyone got to participate. But if someone was not educated, all of that was for nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I kind of see these almost as like a three-legged stool. Um, and even to this day, like the organizations I volunteer for, the organizations I've worked for, the organizations I give money to, um, all fall into those three buckets. Except I also give to the ASPCA because who can deny like kittens and stuff like that? But, but you know, and so it's just kind of become a charge that those three things. Um, kind of drove me and it was my experience as a teacher in a community that was more different than, you know, any community I had ever lived in in my life or grown up in. And being able to see sort of the common humanity Mm. um, despite all those differences and what people I felt really deserved. Like you deserve an education, you deserve equal rights and you deserve the ability to participate, you know, in the decisions of this country as much as I do. And that kind of became my, my driving my driving force. But yeah, it was completely different from my original intention. Growing up in Europe and all over the country because of my parents, I was going to be an international corporate attorney for no reason other than I knew international stuff. Um, I spoke another language and lawyers made a lot of money, right? And so my time in the classroom, you know, I ended up still going to law school. But again, like I said, I, I completely changed my focus. I studied the law of democracy and I never worked for a law firm in my life. I actually, um, I, I worked for Teach for America throughout law school uh, during the summers. And then my first job out of law school and grad school was 
<clears throat> excuse me, um, being an executive director with Teach for America. And so since then, I've gone back and forth between just sort of like school management or nonprofits that work with schools. Mm -hmm. But that's been my career for 25 years, and I have no regrets. <laughs> and, and over the years, as, as a leader um, in, of many different organizations, well, I don't know if you saw or heard um, a few, maybe it's a few months ago when um, there's a leaked interview, a leaked um, audio of Tom Cruise yelling at um, uh, his film set because mm. some of them had broke um, COVID protocol or something like that. But it was interesting that it, it, it kind of it went viral and it sparked this conversation about um, leadership. And you know, some people were kind of raving about, about that, that you know, there's a leader taking charge and other people are like, well, never treat people that way. Um, what have you um, learned about leadership over the years? And do you have a leadership style that, that, that you've kind of taken on? Oh, I'm sure I do. Uh, <laughs> you should ask the I, people that work with me right now. Because <laughs> I know I, I know you yell at everybody. <laughs> I do, I do. I have this <laughs> wicked temper. I'm just mean. Um, I, I think managing through fear is the best approach. Um, I don't, actually. I think there's a few tenets to how I approach leadership. The first thing is some of this will sound cliche and it came from a management book uh, because they are true and that it actually works, I think. The first thing is you lead by example in that I've never asked anyone to do something that they probably haven't seen me do, no matter how menial or whatever. I have no assistant. I still schedule all my appointments in my calendar for myself, right? You know, that kind of thing. And I help at events and I, I will hang up banners and I don't need to be the person speaking when it is not relevant for the president of the organization to be speaking, right? It's, it's, you know, and I'm happy to work at the registration desk and just be Chuck on my name tag, right? I don't really care about that. So leading by example, uh, really kind of engenders trust and sort of a camaraderie uh, with folks. The second thing is that I think I've learned that, that makes a good leader besides leading by example, is setting clear expectations. I, I, I get this in my feedback forms all the time in that people know where they stand and what is expected of them and they know what success looks like. And so they know that if they're coming to a meeting with me, whether they're going to be successful or not, <laughs> because they know exactly what is expected of them. And, and so kind of trying to be as unambiguous as you can. Right. So being genuine and being unambiguous really kind of engenders trust and kind of a work ethic that uh, I assume everybody has, but even even, you know, it develops further in people that they want to rise to the occasion and 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 be worthy of like that kind of trust and camaraderie, mm -hmm. um, I think. And I'm pretty quiet as well. I've I've learned that it's better, you know, what is it, Mark Twain or somebody said, you know, you're not learning when you're talking, <laughs> that sort of thing. Somebody said that, I, somebody famous and smart said that. Uh, and it's true. I used to, because I have a lot of thoughts about a lot of things, right? I've found that my ideas and my plans always get better after talking to people 
And it's not a good idea, no matter how good your ideas might be, it's not a good idea just to lay them out to people and say, this is how it will be, mm -hmm. right? Um, and to let people contribute, uh, it helps them grow. And ultimately then it does help them to, you know, come around and see it my way. <laughs> <laughs> do it but but just really being open and letting people talk and giving people space uh, my boss commented the other day our founder uh, he told me he says i know that you never speak if you don't feel that you can add to the conversation and it's true i said and it's actually kind of been a hindrance to me with some organizations because their idea of leadership was that you must always speak Mm -hmm. And you must always be putting forth a, a position. And my thought is, is if somebody has already said what I would say, like, right. there's no reason to be like, oh, I'm from, from what he said. <laughs> I never, I never dovetail off of someone's comment. I never <laughs> piggyback off of someone's comment, right? I'm like, look, it was said. And I agree with it. When we get to vote, I'll vote because, you know, it's been said. And, and so just being quiet and letting other people talk. You don't need um, to have the last word. Exactly. Or even the first, right. Right. I think. So, and I, you know, I, I, I joked just this morning to one of, one of my vice presidents, we were having a check-in and I said, I will write a management book one day <laughs> because I've learned these things. Um, but what I, what I please, please find tell me fascinating. If, please tell me if you're gonna title it Charles in Charge. <laughs> well, of course, <laughs> but if I see any book called that before that, I, I will know where it came from. But I, what, I, what I find so fascinating, what I, what I think is my work, right? It's my job is just getting better at it all the time, right? I, I, I still learn stuff and I still mess up and, and I still look for every opportunity you know, in a cyclical kind of way to do better the next time because you always you always can. And that's what's actually fun for me. And I, I guess if that was another tenant of mine, I think people recognize that in my management of them is that I expect the same from them. Mm -hmm. You don't have to be perfect, but you have to always get better, right? right. I think that's, that's the challenge. And that's what's exciting about coming to work or being a professional is just getting, is just getting better mm -hmm. every day. Outside of work, when you're not uh, when you're not in the office, what do you? The other part of the podcast is um, you know, the play on my name, Life of Gusto. What do you do for fun? What are some things that you like to do to live life to the right. fullest? I, I was gonna say, well, life outside the office is I actually live at work, like most people <laughs> do for the past right. year. Um, and so I hung up from a work call to talk to you today, and I'm still sitting at my dining room <laughs> table. So it's like I haven't gone anywhere. But um, what do I do for fun? So I have thought a lot about it. Um, I, I just had my 46th birthday and I was Happy having what I can, thank you. I, only what I could classify as, you know, just a typical standard midlife crisis. <laughs> like, is this all I am? Is, why am I not more? <laughs> like, why is my life not more? Um, and then I got over myself and, you know, had, had some more rational thoughts, but I, I kind of thought about like a lot of the things I used to do for fun that I don't do anymore. A lot of things that I, you know, I don't speak German that well anymore. And I was pretty good when I was younger. I used to be a really good musician. And now that's transferred into basically just being a, an enthusiast and an, and an appreciator of music. 
mm-hmm. and I can understand music, I think, in ways that, you know, people who aren't musicians can. But yeah. I don't I don't play the trumpet anymore. And I was like, what is it that I do? And I realized there's two things. I love consuming and learning, mm-hmm. and I love producing and creating still. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, it's just been that kind of cycle. And so I still, in the kind of the learning mode, I still, I love reading and I love, you know, watching YouTube cat videos and, and other just informational videos, educational videos, as, as Cartman would say, right? I, I, and just learning about things and learning different perspectives. And then I love traveling and just seeing different places mm-hmm. um, and then taking all of that and then creating from it. And so I have really gotten into photography and I've really gotten into cooking and baking, mm-hmm. thanks to my fiance, like candy making, which is deadly <laughs> when you have that around. And then now I've actually started to work on and just got as a present a book about food photography, how to actually kind of stylize that. And so just kind of merging these things. And, and then of a lot of the learnings that I take on is like then writing about it and, you know, just having thoughts and not expecting them ever to be published, like, you know, the lost Federalist Papers one day. <laughs> I mean, like, how smart was this guy? But just doing it for myself. And so it's, it's just been sort of an evolution. But yeah, I think, I think just that idea of, of, of learning and then in one form or another, then creating myself mm-hmm. um, really takes up most of my time. Um, right. Although I, I will admit, I'm one of those people that gladly you know, works on weekends sometimes because I do love my work. Right. Um, so. Well, I think you should publish whatever those, even if it's the lost Federalist Papers, you, your, <laughs> your words need to be out in the world in some form. Um, and I will take credit for, for nudging you um, into food photography because I was one of the first critics of your food pictures. <laughs> yes, because my food pictures were terrible. You're like, what is, what are you eating that's gray <laughs> sliding off the plate? And I'm like, it's pizza. <laughs> like, you really need to work on that. You need to work on that. So, yeah. Um, and, oh. you know, but one thing, one thing I've, I've struggled with, though, is I kind of thought that, you know, I used to, I bought all this expensive camera equipment and, and all of that. Mm-hmm. And then I real I then I stopped using it because I took courses and I I read books and I could never keep like the f stop and the aperture and like what do you do I just couldn't do it and it got really expensive and then I got this thing called the iPhone that right <laughs> now has like three lenses on it, it, does it and all I have, for you and I haven't you know and and so I think like I know there's a lot of people who say well the art or if you're a real photographer you know thing is like being able to use that equipment. And all that, and I actually find that probably some of the bigger skills are just having an eye for something, for seeing something, for framing it, and then mm-hmm. yeah, there's probably some editing afterwards. But that's like kind of the new the new skill, and and I'm I'm not so worried anymore that I I don't have a big bag of camera equipment and I don't, don't know it. how to capture the stuff. Yeah, it's more about it's more about your eye and and the the image that you want to capture, and not so much that you know how to manipulate. The machinery to get it, mm-hmm. I think, and mm-hmm. it took me a while to get comfortable with that. Yeah, I think that's a great, great place to start because a lot of times people think they're not going to get into into photography because they don't have the right equipment. But you've got, you know, it's kind of become cliche, but I think it's true. The best camera that you have is the one that, is the one that you have in your hand, and for most people, it is a phone, and it's the phone cameras are amazing. Um, I think with food photography, you could add, you know, some lighting angles or 
I mean, I have some really nice surfaces in my house, like a metal table and a wooden table and, and, and a white uh, countertop, that kind of thing. But I, I just ordered um, some backgrounds and nice. things. Nice. Yeah. So soon you're going to see my next cake in front of like a white brick wall and you're going to be like, where in the world is that in your house? <laughs> like, it's not. It's not. You broke quarantine to go take a picture of a cake. Exactly. Just put my <laughs> cake in front of somebody's building outside so, my neighborhood. <laughs> All right, Chuck, we are we have reached the near the end of the episode, and I always like to end with a series of rapid fire questions okay if you're ready um, now i can do the yes no's these are the well answers um you know whatever comes to the top of your mind you can elaborate if you like um okay you don't have to unless i want you to uh, all right so. <laughs> then, then i have to yes yeah. all right chuck salter are you ready for the life of gusto quick fire i am ready beer wine or cocktails Oh, not beer. <laughs> Unique answer. Um, choose one, San Francisco, Chicago, or Boston. They are three of my four favorite cities. I know. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> um, I would um, live in Chicago. I would, I would pick Chicago. Okay. Uh, if you had a free plane ticket right now, you had to go to one of those cities, where would you go? Oh, San Francisco, it's too cold in <laughs> Chicago and Boston right now. San Francisco right now, yeah. Nice. Um, DC in spring or DC in the fall? Anywhere in the fall, it's my favorite season. Nice. Um, the favorite, uh, favorite thing that you've cooked or baked during the last year? I made for Thanksgiving a pumpkin cheesecake which was divine and actually probably one of my best food photography. I was going to say, and it was beautifully yeah. photographed. <laughs> and it was beautifully photographed, which is a complete accident. And I was like, oh my God, it worked. So like, look at that. Nice. You have a day off in DC. Where do you go or what do you do? Rock Creek Park, or which actually encompasses almost a quarter of the city. Most people don't know that. It's huge. Um, and or Georgetown. Yes. Um, we'll have to do a part two to, to talk about Star Wars, which we didn't get to, but... Oh my gosh. Um, I are, thought that's what we would talk about today. I know, I know, I know. <laughs> um, you're a Jedi. It's time for you to craft your lightsaber. What color is yours? Yellow. Yellow. Yeah, so when I was a kid, it had to be green because that was my favorite color. But as I've grown up, blue is actually my preferred color uh, for clothes and decorating and just about anything. But knowing what the yellow lightsaber is supposed to mean in canon, mm -hmm. maybe yellow. Ah, okay. We'll have to unpack that. Yeah, yeah unpack that. <laughs> that's, that's like, so <laughs> <laughs> um, post COVID, whenever that is, when we can start to travel again, uh, two or three places you'd like to, to visit? Oh, gosh. Uh, such a good question. <laughs> I've stopped thinking about traveling. Um, I will go home uh, to Indiana and see my parents. Mm. Um, and then places I'd like to go uh, that we've been talking about is I'm always up for a trip to London. Mm -hmm. kind of want to live there, but yeah. I'm thinking like go there and probably in the book sometime is Australia. 
Uh, that remains one of the few, I mean, I have a few, but that's one of the few bucket list places that mm -hmm. I really need to go. And once we're free to do so, I think it might be in the cards. Nice, nice. Um, a couple more, a, a book that you've read recently that you think should be on everyone's bookshelf. The Soul of America by John Meacham. And why that book? I love his philosophy that, you know, he's very eloquent in that he says uh, the history of America is always the conflict between our worst instincts and our better angels. Mm. And he said, for the most part, the better angels have won. Right. And he's like, the proof is we wouldn't be here if it weren't. And this book, you know, just in the time it came out and just I love his writing. Um, it's amazing. And I've actually recommended it to a few friends who have been really depressed about mm. where we are. Because he goes through and he talks, it's largely through the lens of the presidency, because um, right. that's what he is, presidential historian, mm -hmm. but really looking at how people stepped up and the right overcame the potential or the actual realized wrong that mm -hmm. was happening in our history. And it's, it's pretty inspirational and it also just kind of puts everything we're doing, not that things that have happened aren't terrible and some of them unprecedented, but it does put it in some kind of historical context um, that that we have what it takes and we'll be okay we can right. be okay and finally i asked this question to friends who are cat lovers um, you have 30 seconds to speak to your cat erasmus and he understands you what do you say to him <laughs> oh my goodness um 30 seconds to speak to erasmus uh I'd probably want to know what he thought of his life. Uh, he's 18 right now. And, um, you know, I've had him longer than I will have him. I've had him since I was in law school. Uh, he's moved everywhere with me about seven times. He's been on airplanes, cars, moving trucks. He's kind of a trooper. Um, and so, yeah, I think I'd want to know what he actually thought of, of his life, assuming that he had deep thoughts about it. <laughs> I'm sure you'd have good things to say about you. Well, I would hope. I still beat him. So. <laughs> and to close, Chuck, uh, I always like to end by asking my guests, uh, do you have a life tip, piece of advice that you'd like to share? It can be about news literacy. It can be about cooking, baking, anything that you'd like to, to share with the uh, listeners out there. I'm sure I could come up with a whole list of profound things. Um, but I think in keeping with what we've been talking about and what my work has been. And I think what I've realized uh, during my midlife crisis uh, over the past few months is never, never stop growing. I was consumed with fear that when you reach a certain age artificially imposed by myself, it was too late to do anything or become anything else um, or to improve or to start something or, or to be of value in a different way. And that's just not true. And so I just tell people, you know, rather than reach for the stars or believe in yourself, right, is like constantly it was, it's what makes, I think, life worth living is just never stop growing. That sounds like a perfect place to end. You're like, I've had enough of this. <laughs> this drew. Well, I enjoyed it. It was fun. Thanks for asking me. Thank you, Chuck. Well, I know the first part of that conversation just 
scratch the surface of some very challenging and complex issues. But I hope Chuck gave you some food for thought, some inspiration, and maybe even a little bit of hope for the future. You can find Chuck on the web. He's Charles Salter on LinkedIn. And on Twitter, his handle is at SalterCRS. To learn more about News Literacy Project, head to their website, newslit.org. And if you're an educator, you'll find a host of free tools, resources, and curriculum that you can use in your classroom tomorrow. I hope you enjoyed that episode. If you like what you hear, hit that subscribe button, post a review, share the podcast with your friends. Come back soon for more conversation about timely topics, finding your way, and living a life of gusto. Thanks, everybody. See you next time. Thank you.